You're a riot, Alice. Regular riot. I hope they like those jokes on the moon, because that's where you're going. Radios this week on Broadway for Sunday, October 15th, 2017. My name is James Marino, and in the broadcast today we have Peter Felicia and Janet Tessa Fox. Peter is a theater journalist and historian with a number of books. His most recent is The Great Parade, which is available everywhere. His columns appear at MTI Masterworks Broadway, Broadway Select, and many other places. Good morning, Peter. Good morning. Good morning. Also with us is Jenna Sessa Fox. Jenna is a theater writer and reviewer whose articles have appeared at Time Out New York, Playbill, Broadway World, and New York Theater Guide. Good morning, Jess. Jenna. Good morning. Good morning. Michael, as we mentioned last week, is cruising. Uh, he's on a cruise ship uh, somewhere out towards the Bahamas right now, and he'll be rejoining us next week. We hope he's having a wonderful and relaxing time. Uh, I want to throw in something at the top of the show here, kind of a public service announcement, maybe a plea for help. Um, There is a young guy named Nick Practico who is missing. He went missing in the middle of September, uh, around September 20th, Uh, and he was at Mercer County Community College in northern New Jersey. And uh, his family is desperate to reach him, and feel they feel as though that he has – uh, headed to New York. Uh, he was an acting student and that he hasn't checked in with his friends or family. If anybody uh, knows um, anything about Nick, uh, there's a link in the show notes at broadwayradio.com to find Nick Practico, and we'd appreciate you getting in touch with his family. First wow. up, awful. Yeah, yeah, yes, it's terribly awful. It's, um, you know, we're recording this nearly a month after he's gone missing. Oh, uh, wow. And the family really feels as though that he's in New York somewhere, uh, that he had a falling out with them or some, something along those lines had happened. Um, and, uh, you know, he looks like, you know, he's right out of central casting for Tony and West Side Story. He's a really good looking guy. He's young. He's talented. He's, uh, studying acting and they figure maybe he just went to New York and, um, but everybody's really ner- uh, really worried about and concerned about him. And there's really a wonderful video uh, from all of his classmates and friends uh, asking him to come back home and check it out. So, Nick, if you're listening to this or if anybody knows Nick, please uh, get over to, the, to that link in uh, the Broadway Radio Show Notes to contact his family. Um, first up, Jenna and Peter got a chance to see Time in the Conways at the American Airlines Theater. So, uh, Jenna, why don't you start us off with that? Thank you. So, Roundabout, it's continuing uh, this year's trend of plays about sibling conflict following The Price and Marvin's Room from earlier this year. Uh, Time in the Conways is one of J.B.'s Priestley's time plays. It's a series that he wrote from about 1932 to 1945. The most famous of these plays is An Inspector Calls, all of them examine the nature of time and they use time as a dramatic device. So Time in the Conways starts in 1919, just after World War I has ended, and we meet the Conways, this upper middle class family with a matriarch and six children. They're celebrating the end of the war and a return to normalcy, and they're all optimistic about the future. The play then jumps ahead 20 years, and we see what their lives are like at the be- at the beginning of World War II, just before World War II is about to get started. And then the last act jumps back again to 1919, and we continue on with that first night and see what else happened. Uh, this is both a neat dramatic device, but it's also kind of a handicap, because when we jump back in time, we already know what's going to happen. They've talked about what else happened that night. So now we just see what we've already been told is about to happen. And I think that's one of the play's biggest problems. Uh, As a study in classism and snobbery, it's fine. But Priestley's script just doesn't have much in the way of conflict other than petty squabbling. And that makes it rather hard to build much tension. There aren't much in 
there's not much in the way of secrets or lies that need to be revealed. So there isn't much drama. It's just unhappy people making each other unhappy and nothing much changes. And because we know the future, we also can't have much hope that things are going to get better for them. Uh, so it's a problematic script, and I'm not quite sure why Roundabout wanted to go with this one when I've just been learning about all the time plays. I didn't know that uh, this was one of his series. It sounds like there are others that are just fascinating and that would be a lot more interesting with a lot more conflict. This one didn't have a lot of blood in it, and it's not that exciting. It's not that interesting to watch. Uh, what does What is lovely to watch is Neil Patel's set. Uh, simple and elegant, and it has one of the best uses of scrims that I've seen in a very long time. Uh, I, I don't want to spoil too much of the uh, the surprise for anyone who gets to see it, but uh, Patel recreates his set using scrims so that we can see a we can see another set behind the one that we're watching for one scene, and this really brings up a moment. In the script, uh, at one point, a character is commenting on the nature of time, and he says, at this moment or at any moment, we are only a cross-section of our real selves. What we really are is a whole stretch of ourselves with all of our time. And we get to see that literally displayed in front of us, cross-sections of time moving backwards on the stage. So Neil Patel deserves lots of praise for beautifully visualizing a concept that's in a line of dialogue. Uh, also, Paloma Young's period costumes are absolutely gorgeous and also deserve a lot of praise. The cast is very, very talented, but the material just doesn't give them a lot to work with. Uh, Stephen Boyer gives, uh, he's a, offers a great counterpoint to his performance in Hand to God. Uh, here he's very quiet with this cold rage that's never quite boiling over, but it still manages to burn. Uh, really good performance. I'm always excited to see what else he's working on. He's just a joy to watch. Uh, Gabriel Ebert does some beautiful work as the eldest son in the family. He's very quiet and observant, and he can see that all of their optimism in the beginning is maybe misplaced. And just watching him, watching them is really beautiful. He does a lot. He does as much as he can with very little material. Elizabeth McGovern is billed as the lead, and she really isn't. Uh, she's a supporting character as the matriarch of the family, and she's fine. She does fine work, but again, she doesn't have that much to do. Charlotte Parry is a Kay, the birthday girl in both time periods, uh, but Again, she doesn't have much in the way of a personality, and she doesn't get to do uh, very much. Anna Camp does some very nice work. She's very flighty in 1919 and then traumatized in 1937. And I would really love to see more of what she could have done if her character was given more material to work with other than those two extremes. Uh, Brooke Bloom plays this uh, one of the daughters who's an up-and-coming socialist, and again, she's given a lot of good material. She's given more material, but it doesn't. she doesn't have much of a chance to go deep into it. And I'd be happy to see a play just about her and this budding socialist in 1919 Britain and how she changes in 1937. We get a few good scenes with her, and she does some nice work, but it's not enough. It's, uh, Rebecca Tachman did the, uh, is the director. The direction's fine, if unremarkable. The uh, characters just aren't deep enough or even a Rebecca, uh, uh, sorry, a director of her skill to bring anything truly unexpected to the surface. And it just seems, uh, just the choice for Roundabout just seems strange. With all the talented cast and the very talented team uh, behind the, the creative team, it, it feels like this should have been a stronger play, and I really wish it had been. Um, I hope the next one goes better. All right, Peter, what do you think? 
I liked it substantially more. Uh, I thought it was terrific, though I will admit that um, it could be summarized in a Fred Ebb lyric, which is, and you learn how to settle for what you get, because, because that's what happens here. Um, I, there is no question that uh, once you understand the setup, that you say, uh, your eyes glaze over and you say, oh, oh, oh yeah, I, I, I get it. Yeah, okay, right. Um, what's going to happen is all their great plans uh, are not going to come through for them, and it's going to be a, a much lesser life for each of the characters. That's true. Um, you do see what's coming. I'll grant you that. And it, the play gets off to a terribly slow start because there's so much exposition. But once it gets going, I was pretty fascinated by it. Um, oh, good. Yeah, sure. Why not? Well, no, I have. I mean, oh, I know. Please, I understand. You know, this we, is what you taught me. You're the one who said, you know, you want to find the right audience for the right show. I'm glad you enjoyed it. I know you are. <laughs> so, anyway, um, what I liked so much about it um, was that everything that was set up in the in the first act does pay off in the third act. Um, and again, there's only one intermission. But anyway, that second act, uh, when you see what's happened to people. Really uh, got me because of the details in it. Now, one of the things that happens is that um, a, a, a very poor guy shows up in the first act, Ernest, and he is so intimidated by the thought of the Conways who are highfalutin. Well, the thing is, we get the impression at one point he comes out with a, an opinion about money that is so strong. And the Conways have no idea what he's talking about, that we really get the impression that he's going to amount to something. At this point, um, <laughs> he's one of the characters calls him a pipsqueak. And yes, um, that's the way he seems. And this is the Stephen Boyer role. Sure. But um, as we learned from the Super Bowl last year, just because you don't scroll early in the first quarter doesn't mean you're going to lose the game. And we get the impression from his smart talk about money that he's going to amount to something. So um, 19 years later, when we uh, catch up with the Conways and we do see that Elizabeth McGovern character now looks like the mad woman of Shio. I mean, hmm. tough times have happened. And Robin, who was the golden boy, the son, the golden boy who um, who Joan desperately wanted to marry. She was so um, in love with him uh, because he was good looking. Well, we find out clothes do not make the man by any stretch of any imagination because um, he's turned out to be a simple drunk. And there's a very telling detail here, too, when he goes to the liquor table not long after he arrives in the second act and says, who wants a drink? Meaning like he wants to imply that everybody drinks. It's what we do and nobody does. And so, well, I think I'll have one, you know, and the point is we knew he was going to have one, but the thing is that he wanted everybody to join him. So he wouldn't seem so obvious an alcoholic. Mm -hmm. Um, the mother, in fact, pours a drink for Ernest in that second act, hoping that that will uh, lubricate him and make him a little, um, more conducive to what uh, she wants, which is money. Cause the family has fallen on really hard times. And he's made a pile. He's not unlike Mr. Snow in that way. Um, he's really made it. And um, and the speech he has about his money and their money and never the twain shall meet uh, is a very effective speech. Uh, it, 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 he really comes down to brass tacks. And it's a very impressive moment. So um, what's also sad is that uh, one person has died. And um, Ernest says that she was worth all of them. And in the third act, we do see why, because she is nice to him while others are looking down on him. So so I think that's uh, really effective as well. So um, but it really is about the fact that you have to settle for what you get um, and you learn how to do it. And there's nothing uh, more you can do unless you uh, kill yourself. Um, you have to you have to even look to your accomplishments. And the play reminded me a great deal of Chekhov's Three Sisters, because just as Ernest comes from nothing and becomes powerful, Natasha and Three Sisters comes from nothing and becomes powerful. And um, so there's a lot there. Um, and we do see the disappointments in the Three Sisters as well. So so. 
it reminded me a great deal of that. And um, that's one of my favorite plays. So um, this variation on a theme really um, was something that I could uh, relate to tremendously. Um, So when Robin says, I've got lots of plans, you may in the first act, you may know very well that they aren't going to come true because, you know, that and sixpence will get you a ride on the underground. But even though you see it coming, it's, it's certainly the details that are very telling. Robin has a moment with a flower. I'm not going to say more, but a moment with a flower that tells us so much about his personality. So that's what I liked about this play, the details. Yes, predictable, sure, but the details made it well worth the ride. All right. So uh, Time in the Conways is playing through November 26th at the American Airlines Theater. Uh, it's a roundabout theater production, and uh, we'll have links to that in the show notes. Peter, you got over to um, – well, it's actually not at Ars Nova, is it? Is K-pop over at Ars Nova, or is Ars Nova just producing it? Um, I see Ars Nova all over the credits, so I, I guess um, it, it's at the, the 53rd Street Theater. So I don't know what what that is, actually. but um, <laughs> so. Yeah, so uh, – you saw K-pop, and it is the hot uh, show of the year right now uh, and ending very soon. But tell us what you thought about K-pop. Well, this is the damnest thing I've ever seen. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I've been saying that a lot lately, haven't yeah, you? Yeah, you have. <laughs> well, anyway, you come into the theater, and uh, you, you'll notice to, to the left there's an enormous, an enormous elevator. Um, really substantially larger, um, like an industrial elevator. So, um, and so they tell all of us to uh, climb up three flights of stairs. So I said, uh, well, what about the elevator? And they said, well, um, if you want us to take you up, we will. And I said, yeah, sure. So um, while we were riding, I said, um, look, I mean, this elevator is really big. Uh, why are you sending people up three flights of stairs? They said, well, if too many people get on, the elevator malfunctions. So now, wait a minute. You know, I mean, I, I was just at the uh, Orbeck Theater um, to see Game of Thrones, and there's a sign in the elevator. No more than six people can be in the elevator. When you go to the York Theater, I think it's 10 people. No more than 10 people can be in the elevator. Why can't this elevator um, have a sign saying no more than X people? Whatever it is. I mean, and it's bigger than both of those elevators put together, and then some. So, so we got off to a shaky start here. All right. So we get up there. And we're assigned um, – well, we first – everybody goes into a big, big room where um, we hear some uh, Korean music by a bunch of uh, very game, uh, very um, attractive people. Fine. Then two people get on stage, and uh, we find out they're the brains of the operation. They're a married couple. And the woman says, look, I'm, 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 I'm a little – I'm not used to talking like this because introducing myself because everybody knows me in Asia. Aha. Uh-huh. I checked. 4,436,000,000 people live in Asia. I dare say that not everybody knows her in Asia. But anyway, she claims to have been a big star there. And then her husband, who's substantially older, um, a very short man, um, talks about the fact that when they looked at each other, when they first met, it was love at first sight. Well, you know, I mean, what can I say? I wasn't there. Uh, perhaps it was. It might have been. You know, I have a feeling it might have been love at first sight for him. I'm not sure it was for her. But maybe she looked at him and found out he was a mogul and realized he wasn't so short when he standed, when he stood on his money. So that could very well be, too. All right. So then they take us into different rooms. OK. And the room I was in, there's a woman who um, I'm not saying she is a dominatrix, but she has that type of personality. Get away from that door. Don't stand there. Go over there. Um, that type of thing. So I'm the world's worst masochist. I mean, I don't find this type of thing entertaining at all. So as a result, um, I, I wasn't having a good time. Well, anyway, then they take you into a room where there are headsets and you listen to a group called Special K. Uh, the K is backwards, which might be a metaphor. But anyway, there's also a, a, a thing on the wall telling you that they are interested in world domination that they are going to be this big um, sensational group. And suddenly you realize what you really are at is a press party without the food because what you're doing is you're listening to uh, these people sing their songs of the headsets. They're just demonstrating who these people are, what they do, that they're groups. Well, I mean, yeah, well, anyway, then we go into another room uh, and then the dominatrix comes back and immediately she says, don't breathe, don't say a word, nothing. 
And I said, why? And uh, so we got into a little um, to do over that, believe me. You know what I learned from the show um, with the dictator type aspect here that maybe South Korea is just as bad as North Korea when it comes to dictators. I don't know. But anyway, I had a a miserable time, but yes, it's a very hot ticket. And, uh, you know, for people who enjoy the the type of theater that they've never seen before, uh, the type of thing doing, you know, go here, go there, do this, do that. Um, people seem to be having a good time, but it just wasn't for me. All right. So, uh, that's interesting because there's been so much over the top uh, gushing about K-pop that we haven't heard a minority, minority no, no, no. report like no, no. this. Oh, yeah. And I agree with much of what you're saying. If I went to a show and had all that stuff uh, happen to me, I think I would be right there in your camp. I'm not so well. You know, the thing is too that um, I, I wish I had said to her, uh, and of course, all the good ideas come later. Um, I wish I had said to her, "Hey, hey, people are paying money for this. You know, you're supposed to entertain us. We're not supposed to do what you say. You're not here to command. You're working for us. We paid, so." Don't tell us what to do. Do something instead. So, uh, but um, maybe I'll go back and tell her that. You know, that might be a good. <laughs> Peter, it was like when we were down at New York Theater Workshop and we saw the guy with all the, oh, the yeah. boxes and yeah. things like that. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. You know, I. I respect, you know, trying to find new horizons and all that, but um, I, I it might be good for for kids who went to Catholic school. Um, they they're used to taking directions like that from nuns. I mean, if you're a certain age, but um, but otherwise, you know, I, I I just don't want any part of it. All right, so that's uh, K-pop, which is running just uh, through October twenty first. It's uh, the run is is sold out, uh, but there are some cancellation uh, uh, preparations made in case uh, somebody cancels and you can get in. There but, is a uh, line. There is a line that stretches outside the theater. And there were about, I'd say, 10 or 15 people when I got there. And that was about quarter of. Um, so um, the line might have doubled or tripled in size by the time um, it actually happened. But, yes, this is a hot ticket, no question about it. All right. So, Jenna, you got a chance to get down to the public theater to see Tiny Beautiful Things. Uh, tell us yes. about this. So, Tiny Beautiful Things. Uh, people may recognize the name. It was a book by Cheryl Strayed, and this is a th uh, stage adaptation of the book. However, the book is not a novel. The book is a collection of uh, advice that Cheryl Strayed shared when she was writing a self-help column or an advice column, more accurately. And people would write in with their problems like Dear Abby. In this case, it was Dear Sugar. And she would offer advice based on her own life experience, which she has written about in several of her books, and offer tips on how to be happy, how to be fulfilled, how to handle your problems. So it's a great setup for a series of monologues in a way. Uh, the play let's, uh, the play was co-conceived by Marshall Heyman, Thomas Kale, and Nia Vardalos. Vardalos adapted the book for the stage, and Kale is the director. It premiered last winter in the Shiva Theater and sold out quickly, so now the play has moved uh, for this season to the Newman Theater, where... Tommy Kale got to direct Hamilton and where A Chorus Line first premiered, so a very illustrious stage. Um, it doesn't feel quite right to call this a play because there's no real dramatic arc to it. Uh, it's a sele selection of letters being recited and then Cheryl Strayed's responses to these letters. The cast includes Vardalos playing Strayed and then a three-person ensemble, Teddy Kenyez, Hubert Pontujour, and Natalie Willems-Torres. They, uh, re they, re they recite these letters and share their problems, and then Vardalos, as Strayed, talks about her life and her challenges, her travels around the world, her drug addictions, and eventually settling down and figuring out what she's going to do, her grief over her mother's death and how terribly that affected her and all of the problems that she has dealt with and been able to overcome. And she uses this as backup for advice that she gives to people. But 
at no point is this a drama in terms of a conflict is set up and that it needs to be overcome by the end. It's more of a performance art piece. And to that end, I'm rather surprised that this production decided to recreate a living room set on the stage. Very detailed. Uh, Rachel Hawk created the set, a very nice looking middle class kitchen and living room. And as she's reciting the letters, Nia Vardalos as Strayed walks around making sandwiches, pouring coffee, pouring cocktails. And she's moving through her living room as she's sharing life advice. And it all feels very homey. But there doesn't seem to be a reason for it. And it it feels strange to think of this as a play and not more of a, a theatrical experience. Because, like I said, there isn't that much of an arc. Which is not to say that there isn't there aren't dramatic moments. Some of the letters and the stories that are shared are incredibly powerful, uh, especially um, Kanyes. He has an amazing scene in which he talks about the death of his son, and asks for help in learning to move on and make his grief a part of his life, and something that he can live with. And Vardalos gives her best performance, her best moment when she answers him and talks very simply about her own grief and how she's learned to make that a part of her life and how to live with it. And it's a breathtaking moment. And I pretty much mean that literally. I don't think anyone in the theater was breathing during that entire segment. It was just incredibly powerful. But much of the rest of it just felt like people whining. And and for me, that just wasn't terribly dramatic. There were some cute bits, but... It didn't give them. It didn't give any of the actors a chance to build complex three-dimensional characters. They're just reading out other people's letters. And as for Vardalos, uh, her performance got stronger as the play went on, but it seemed very limited and restrictive early early on in the piece. And she warmed up towards the end and became much more comfortable. But she seemed very awkward. At least the night I saw it, she really seemed to be having trouble making her character a character. Uh, It's an interesting piece, and especially for that one letter and that one response, if you have a chance, I'd see it just for that moment because it's just that powerful. Um, The costume design, uh, Jennifer Muller's costume design is lovely, uh, very nice, nothing remarkable. Uh, Makes the characters, the uh, ensemble, who are playing multiple roles, uh, nicely blend in together. Uh, so their other costumes are just very uniform. So rather than creating costume for a specific character, they're more of the everyman and women. The play is not as dramatically powerful as I think it could have been, and I wonder what it would be like if it was staged more like love letters without the set, without the distraction of a set, and if it was something as simple as sitting on stools, reading the letters off of uh, music stands, as love letters is usually done. And if I would have been able to focus more on the content of the letters or if I would have found more drama in the letters had it been staged more simply rather than recreating a living room and watching someone walk around and make lunches and make drinks and do things that people do in living rooms. It's it felt like overkill. It felt like the meat of the story is in listening to her uh, her stories of coming to terms with grief, moving on with life, getting over drug addiction. And that was the real strength of the piece, but it felt overwhelmed by other moments that weren't nearly as strong. So it's a good piece. I think it could go on and be a great piece with a bit of more finessing. I'm glad it's getting a second life, and I hope it gets more lives and is redone and different directors offer their take on it. And... If it can be reworked a little bit more, I think it could be more dramatically effective. Let me let me let me weigh in on this um, and say something uh, else, and that is the fact that I will tell you that a very good friend of mine uh, went bef- um, before I did and uh, wrote a report, sent out emails, and saying that he didn't like it at all, and yet he had to confess that so many people in the theater were extraordinarily moved. And when I saw it, the same thing happened. I am telling you, I have never seen so many Kleenexes come out of pocketbooks and handkerchiefs come out of pockets as I did at this show. I will grant you that everything that Jenna says about it not being dramatic, blah, 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 is exactly true. Sure it is. 
um, these epistolary uh, plays uh, have a tough time of it um, in doing that. And I suspect, Jenna, and I'm not saying I'm right, I suspect the reason that we have the set and all that um, other stuff is that I think they were they may have been afraid to be love letters and people would automatically compare them to love letters. And um, so I think they felt they had to do something different there. And again, it may have never occurred to them. But um, if you wait long enough, you're going to hear a letter that, that touches you and touches your life. And um, that seems to be part of the skill. I don't know. I have to admit that since I was a kid, I was a big Dear Abby reader, uh, probably because my mother didn't want me to read it because she was afraid I'd learn things that she didn't want me to know. So um, it may appeal to me more for that reason. And I will admit that one of an expression I use all the time comes from Ann Landers. So uh, I may have more of an affinity for this type of thing than, than Jenna does. But I, I, it certainly held my attention, and I was glad to be there. And while um, very few tears invaded my eyes, again, I'm telling you, that audience was sniffling a lot. And uh, I think there's something to be said for that. Any play that can do that, whether it's a real play or not, uh, has to be commended. I agree. I agree. And if audiences are moved by the piece, uh, I'm all in favor of them going. If they're having an emotional reaction, absolutely check it out. Uh, Just for me, I found, I think we're both speaking about the same moment. Uh, That one letter was gut-wrenching and incredibly dramatically powerful. But I, on the flip side, I wouldn't want all the other letters to be the same kind of punch to the stomach as that one letter was. I don't know what I would suggest the uh, creative team do to make it more dramatically fulfilling. Like I said, I'm, I'm a Love Letters fan. I've seen any number of productions of Love Letters, and for me, it works. I think it's a nice dramatic. There is drama in Love Letters that I felt was missing in this, and perhaps it's because there isn't. There is a narrative arc in Love Letters, and there is not a narrative arc in Tiny Beautiful Things. And I wonder if that's what I was missing—that I didn't have enough of a chance to connect with the characters. And that the strayed character, the only one who is one consistent character all the way throughout, uh, you know, she's the one dispensing advice. So for her to go on an emotion, it's not really her emotional journey. And I think that is in some ways a detriment to the overall power of the piece. But if other people are finding power in it, God bless them and and may more people find that power. I hope they enjoy it and have an amazing experience. Mm Mm-hmm. All right. So, uh, Peter, you mentioned previously that you got over to the Jerry Orbach Theater to see Game of Thrones, the rock musical. Uh, so tell us about uh, this piece. Well, I don't know Game of Thrones at all. I mean, I watch no TV because I'm always at the theater or when I'm home, I'm writing. So uh, so I don't know this series whatsoever. And this happens from time to time uh, when I see um, when I have to go see something that uh, is based on a TV show and I don't know anything about it. And what I always do is take somebody who is crazy for the series with me to get an opinion there. So um, uh my girlfriend Linda said, oh, 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 you got to take Faley. Um, she loves Game of Thrones. So I got in touch with Faley and she said, oh, oh, thank you. Oh, oh, I, I, I can't. Th- oh, please let me take you to dinner. And I mean, really, it was almost like um, every other day I was hearing uh, only three more days, you know, until we that type of thing. So she was so excited. And at intermission, she said to me, you know, I have to get up awfully early tomorrow. Um, do you mind if I um, leave? You know, so if <laughs> so, if an enormous fan of Game of Thrones um, isn't really enthusiastic about Game of Thrones, the parody, the rock musical, the unauthorized parody, um, I don't think there's much to be said for this show. Um, there are plenty of anachronisms. Um, we see a little red baseball cap and um, certainly a forward expression that we've uh, heard um, at least before the election came up a lot that's uh, usually imprinted on that baseball cap that showed up. Um, so um, I stayed. Um, I really have to. And um, it, I, I heard the audience groan a lot 
Um, and at the end, I went to that aforementioned elevator. I was uh, on the aisle and I got out of there quickly. And I was, um, I got in the elevator and, uh, hold the elevator, please. And two people got on, a man and a woman. The woman said, I am so sorry to the guy who said, nah, nah, <laughs> that's all right. No, no, no. I feel terrible. You know, so, so, um, I, all I can do is report other people's reactions um because again um there may be things in it that, oh that is so clever what a way to look at that series that's great maybe but um i can tell you that um three people uh at least one of whom is a diehard games of thrones fan um didn't respond so i have a feeling this one's a bust yeah uh did you go? It, it, no, but I mean, I been I checked out their their press uh, video and things like that. And I'm not a big Game of Thrones watcher on television either. I, I've probably seen one or two episodes, and then um, I, it's so difficult to do good parody. You know? It is. I, I yeah. Think th I think so it many is. people have tried it, and it's yeah. so hard. It is. It you is. Have to have, you have to really have that third eye outside of the production that says, you know, when you're inside a production, everything looks great and hysterical and funny. It does. It does. But it's so important to have that third eye outside that's saying, that doesn't really work. But um, mm. And it seems as though that this... If I'm reading their stuff correctly, this uh, this is just a stop in New York that they're trying to do it at a bunch of theaters around the country. So uh, I, I I don't know how it's been received so far, but we'll have a link to that in the show notes if you want to check it out if you're a Game of Thrones fan and uh, feel it'll add to your experience of watching this uh, this uh, HBO uh, juggernaut that has become such a huge thing. All right. Uh, also, Peter, you got down to the Jim of Judson to see Eye of the Storm. That's the letter I of the Storm uh, down on Thompson Street. So tell us about that. Well, this is Richard Hola's one-man show about a guy who uh, used to be a big wheel and in industry, and then um, he doesn't make it quite clear if how what he did that got him in jail. But something did, and um, he doesn't quite take responsibility for it, but he doesn't quite not either. So uh, that's left for us to decide if he did something truly terrible, a la Bernie Madoff, or if um, it was a minor white-collar crime, if there is such a thing. But anyway, now he's on the street, and uh, he's homeless. And the strange thing is what he does for 75 minutes is essentially tell us the joys of being homeless. So um, there's nothing about, wait a minute, where do you go to the bathroom? You know, um, nothing like that. Um, where do you wash? Uh, that doesn't come up either. There is a sequence where it starts raining and he puts his hoodie or his jacket anyway over his head and um, and the rain lasts about mm, maybe 11 seconds, but in real life, we know it lasts longer than that. So he um, he skims by that, too. So he's full of advice about how we should all smell the flowers, that type of thing. But um, I wouldn't want to smell him, uh, this character. I don't mean Mr. Holler, of course. So and there's a lot of talk, a lot of put down of comforts. Um, and uh, that we're attached to. So, you know, you get an indictment of the cell phone, you know, and other such devices. You know, well, I like those things. As Andre, um, in, in my dinner with Andre, when Wallace Shawn said to Andre Gregory, but I like my electric blanket in the winter. You know, uh, <clears throat> there's nothing wrong with having things that make us feel better. So, you know, he looks a lot like George Carlin, and he even does a George Carlin uh, look where George Carlin used to extend his uh, upper lip uh, way down as far as it could go. And he does this as well. So Hollywood, if you're thinking of doing a biopic of George Carlin, you must very much get in touch with Richard Holler because, I mean, he really looks the part. But in terms of the show, um, he's preaching to the unconverted. And the thing is, um, I would imagine many of us still walk out unconverted because the moment people got out of there, I saw them clicking on their cell phones to see what had gone on in the 75 minutes that um, they weren't there. Yeah, he, he the character believes he's always right and knows everything and has the right value system. And 
if this were done with a bit more rationalization feeling, uh, we might understand it more. The fact that when you when you have everything and then you have nothing, you have to pretend that it 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 doesn't matter that actually the people who have everything um, are chasing the wrong dreams and all that. But he seems sincere, not that he's rationalizing. So I don't get that. What I found very interesting, at one point he talks about meeting a retro flower child. And there were two other critics of the house who immediately went to their notes to write down that phrase. And I have a feeling they had the same reaction I did. Excuse me, but you're a retro flower child because of the way you're looking at things about in this hippy dippy fashion about um, life is beautiful and we don't have to um, have things uh, in our lives to uh, material things to make us happy. So, um, so, you know, I, I, I was pretty um, bored and I was pretty angered when I wasn't bored because he minimizes our achievements and trivializes them by using nonsense rhymes like tutti fruity, Rudy Kazuti type things, you know, um, uh, r- rhyming uh, some of our possessions, that type of thing. So, um, I found this um, really a very painful uh, experience. And I've seen Richard Hull as one-man shows in the past, and I've liked them quite a bit. So um, this is just one that didn't speak to me at all. Okay, so that's Eye of the Storm at the gym at Judson down on Thompson Street. Uh, It's running also through October 29th, uh, and we'll have a link to that in the show notes. Peter, you got over to the Paper Mill Playhouse in Milburn, New Jersey uh, to see a new adaptation of The Honeymooners into a musical. So tell us, how was that? Well, I'll tell you this. The people who are playing Ralph, Alice, Norton, and Trixie must have watched those classic 39 episodes at least 39 times. Because I am telling you, they have every facial expression, every piece of posture down pat. It's extraordinary what they've achieved in that way. They are all marvelous. For the record, that's Michael McGraw as Ralph Cramden, Leslie Kritzer as Alice, Michael Mastro as Norton, and Laura Bell Bundy as Trixie. An extraordinary achievement. So um, that, I'm reminded of what Walter Kerr wrote about uh, Minnie's Boys back in 1970 when he said they got the hardest part right, and meaning that they, the four boys were just so terrific in what they did. And um, it's true here too. So, um, yeah. but the show itself um, is a problem, and um, that has a lot to do with uh, the the book, of course. Uh, when is it ever not the book? Um, so two TV writers, Dusty Kay and Bill Nuss, are their names. What they were really more interested in doing was reminding us of the show rather than surprising us as much as they could. I, I, to be fair, they threw a few curveballs our way, one of which at the end is a really good one. A really good one. A really good one, and yet... When I expected that audience to go crazy over this very surprise thing that happened, nobody reacted at all. There wasn't a sound. I had heard about it in advance, and I said, oh, this audience is going to love that. Ah, ah. I I think it was the case they were bored. The show's awfully long, too. Well, the second act that I think is longer than the first, which is not good musical theater uh, writing. Um, I will say that, you know, because Broadway is so tourist centric and so many have seen the honeymoon as either during its early broadcasts or its you know, many reruns, that there may be an audience for this show. But I wish that it weren't just a case that they went for the touchstones. In other words, that um, Norton loves to play way down up, up, uh, upon the Swanee River um, before he starts writing any type of song. And that's what happens here. They're writing a jingle, hoping they're going to win a contest. And they do. All right, fine. But right away, after they win the contest, the guy from the ad agency says, yeah, and we'd like to hire you for $400 a week, which, by the way, comes to almost $4,000 a week in today's dollars, I checked. You know, nobody does that. Uh, You know, on the basis of one little jingle, they're going to hire them as staff writers. Come on. That's ridiculous. Um, So uh, it becomes more and more ridiculous. Now, I will say this. A lot of people who had seen it in advance said, you're not going to believe this, but they've made Trixie 
a former burlesque dancer. Can you believe it? Well, I did some research, and that actually comes from the series. There were a couple of episodes <laughs> that um, where Trixie was established as a former burlesque dancer before Norton met her. Well, what's interesting about that, by the way, since we're talking history, is originally Trixie was played by Elaine Stritch. Who knew? And really? for that matter, yeah, yeah. And for that matter, um, there was another episode by that time Joyce Randolph uh, was playing Trixie in which she was visited by um, a former colleague, let's say, a former ecdesiast, as we learned from Gypsy. Um, <clears throat> and that was played by Patricia Morrison, you know, the, the elegant leading lady of Kiss Me Kate, uh, who, God love her, at 100, 102 is still with us. Um, and I, I wouldn't necessarily think that Patricia Morrison would play a former stripper, but uh, I haven't seen the episode. So, you know, the, the they're just, as I say, content to, to go with uh, the famous um, parts of the story. The raccoons come into it, of course. Yeah, sure, sure. I mean, all that's good. But, you know, coming out of the theater, um, Paper Mill always advertises what's coming next. And what's coming next is Annie. And the thing about Annie was the fact that when we went into that theater, we thought we were going to see this cartoon, uh, this girl with no eyeballs saying leaping lizards every four seconds. And Annie turned out to have a lot of heart. And this show doesn't have the heart at all. It it wants to. It uh, At the end of the show, there are so many things that happen so quickly to make for a happy ending that aren't very convincing. So that's a problem as well. Peter Mills is an excellent lyricist. He's done a very good job. Um, Steve Weiner has certainly given the sound of the 50s, which is really good. I'm very happy about that, that his music sounds right. Um yeah, you know, I mean, for example, there's going to be a rock musical soon about Robert Moses, a rock musical about a guy who was born in 1888. So uh, so the sound is right for it. And a lot of it sounds right for the June Taylor dancers, not that they make an appearance. But um, the story is just too worn. And I, you know, since they obviously scoured episodes to find out what the honeymooners were, I mean, that's how they found out that she had been a burlesque dancer. How come that they didn't? latch on to the one where Ralph and Alice decide to adopt a baby. That would have been a very nice story because, you know, you have to wonder, what does Alice do all day? I mean, that apartment is so woebegone. And by the way, if this moves to Broadway, um, make sure it's at a playhouse rather than a musical house because it doesn't fill the paper mill stage. You see that apartment, which is even bigger than it is um, on TV, but uh, Beowulf Boris has to mask it with flats on each side to fill uh, the empty space. So um, it's a small show, really, in many respects. But anyway, what does Alice do all day? Why does that apartment look so terrible? Um, especially since your friend Trixie, you know, you see the Norton's apartment, which is always much nicer. There were curtains. There are no curtains in the kitchen. Of uh, well, What does she do? So the episode where they adopt a baby is a very tender one because Ralph wants a boy and he doesn't get it and he gets a girl. Girl, and he thinks he doesn't want it until he starts looking into her eyes and he falls in love with the baby, only to find out later that the baby's mother wants the kid back. And even though leg- legally they don't have to give it back, um, they decide to because they think it's the right thing to do. This this was a tremendously tender episode. And um, again, it has the heart that this show lacks. It, this show just wants to be funny with no emotional resonance. And uh, that's a big problem for it. So I'm sorry to say that four performances are terribly wasted in uh, substandard material when, boy, if they had the real thing, this could have been so memorable. So, Peter, do you think that they can go back and work on this, or is it is it just gone so far off in the wrong direction that it it's they should not? Well, um, I, I'd like to see them tackle that episode, but you know, like all of us, you know, whenever you've done something and you feel like you've completed it, to start overhauling to a great degree seems like such an arduous task um, that. Uh, I, I can't imagine that they would. Uh, so I think this is pretty much the show that it's going to be. And uh, I, it's the show they wanted. And, you know, that's certainly fine. I have to say that the audience liked it, but they certainly didn't love it. Uh, after each number, there was polite, dutiful applause. And, um, and the standing ovation, which, of course, always happens, was very slow to happen. And... Um, 
considering how wonderful the people were, they deserved much more than they got. And again, this was at the performance I was at, which was not the opening. Uh, it was, um, you should pardon the expression, an ordinary performance. Um, and, um, you know, so it was real people there. By the way, it's a tremendously hot ticket, I'm told. Tremendously hot. And getting seats in, uh, is not an easy thing to achieve. So um, so there is a native interest in this. And I imagine that, I, I, I really thought about, people in their cars going home saying that was good in that way that means it was a little less than what they expected. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I think that in concept, when you see it on paper, the honeymooners and with that cast full of, uh, people who have impressed us endlessly before, uh, that this seems like on paper, it would be really good. But, you know, I, I again, then again, you know, Nick and Nora on paper seemed like it a really did. Good yeah, movie. yeah. You know, the other thing too is um, Alan Menken was writing this for a while. Many not connected with this production at all, at all, at all, at all. I'm talking about like 30 years ago, and he was very interested in doing because he loves the TV series. And I don't know what happened, but uh, obviously it didn't happen with Alan Menken. But um, I wonder what what they were up to. I'd like to hear what um, that musical was going for. If indeed, if it was going for heart or just, oh yeah, 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 yeah. I remember the one with, you know, so anyway. <laughs> All right. So before we get on to trivia, I want to remind everybody that you can subscribe to these broadcasts by going to the front page of broadwayradio.com. This is a subscribe link that we each and every time we have a new episode of This Week on Broadway, it'll be automatically downloaded to iTunes for you. Of course, you don't have to listen to us in iTunes. There are many ways you can listen to us. iHeartRadio plays us. TuneIn plays us. Google Play. Anywhere that you can get finer podcasts, uh, including Stitcher, uh, will have our stuff. Uh, contact information for Peter, for Jenna, for me can be found at BroadwayRadio.com as well as uh, links to some of the things we've talked about today. So, Peter, do we have an answer to last week's trivia? Well, what I asked was in 1966, Jerry Herman's Mame told us in song that the man in the moon is a lady. I said, but even a more famous musical that had been produced years before made the same observation, although in dialogue. What's the musical and what character makes the observation? It's West Side Story, in fact. After uh, Tony has fallen deeply in love with uh, Maria, and I'm reading from the script now, Doc says to him, what have you been taking tonight? And he says, a trip to the moon. And I'll tell you a secret. It isn't a man that's up there, Doc. It's a girl, a lady. So, three people got it. Donald Tessioni, Fred Abramowitz, and Ingrid Gammerman. On to next week's. <clears throat> Remember Henrik in A Little Night Music? Tell me why he wouldn't like these songs on their original cast albums. Bloody Mary from South Pacific. I've grown accustomed to her face from My Fair Lady. I've got your number from Little Me. One Halloween from Applause. Old Friends from Merrily We Roll Along, and Do It Alone from Parade. Why wouldn't he approve of these songs? I know the answer, but I'll tell you later. Okay, good. <laughs> good. <laughs> All right. So, uh, Jenna, since you have the answer, email us at triviabroadradio.com. <laughs> we'll let you know if you're on the right uh, track. Everybody else, too, if you know that answer. So, on behalf of Jenna Tessa Fox and Peter Felicia... This is James Marino saying thanks so much for listening to Broadway Videos this week on Broadway. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.